Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Morrissey Movement. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss and share one aspect of fitness and one aspect of medicine. Being a general surgeon and a garage gym athlete, I have a strong passion for both of these aspects of life. So sit back and enjoy the show. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I am in no way forming a patient-doctor relationship. While the aspects discussed in this podcast are medically accurate, you should always discuss with your doctor any questions that you may have about the content. You should always discuss with your doctor before starting any new exercise or dietary changes. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Dr. Chris Morrissey back for another episode of the Morrissey Movement. I hope everyone's having a great week. I want to thank everyone who's been listening to the show so far and giving ratings and feedback. I really appreciate it. You can always contact me at themorrisseymovement at gmail.com for show feedback and also other ideas. Uh, Sorry I've been uh, slacking on getting this out this week. I was actually doing a functional medicine fellowship module this weekend, uh, doing some online streaming lectures regarding immune function. So it was kicking my butt, kind of like drinking out of a fire hose. So I apologize for getting this out. So if anybody was actually sitting on the edge of their seat eagerly awaiting for the next episode, which I highly doubt. Um, here it is for you. So so this week's topic is actually stemmed from one of my nieces. Her name's Penelope Morrissey. She's, I don't know, eight or nine years old. Um, my brother, who lives in Fayetteville, Arkansas, texted me a couple of weeks ago when I was working in the emergency room. It was about two in the morning. Um, she had woke up with some swollen lips and also redness around her ears and face. Um, so he was pretty concerned as any parent would be so he gave me a call and see what I thought it was he sent me some pictures and I was assuming it was something called angioedema which I am going to discuss here shortly so basically I advised him to give Benadryl and go to the emergency room for evaluation he obviously didn't see me because he lives in Arkansas and I live in Winfield Kansas but anyway she did fine so I thought this would be a good topic to discuss since I've seen a handful of this in the emergency room myself um, so I thought I would talk about that today and also the other pairing that I'm going to do is talk about alcohol specifically alcohol effects on training and sleep so let's go ahead and get dove into these topics here so I'm going to start with angioedema so this is basically swelling of the deep dermis subcutaneous or submucosal swelling um, of the membranes resulting in vascular leakage so um, in other words the areas just kind of underneath the skin called the subcutaneous layer uh, gets leaky so like a liquid part of the blood kind of leaks out so that does not mean you're bleeding um, that just is what happens so the acute episodes typically involve the eyes the lips and the face um, but also it can affect other parts of the body including the respiratory and GI system you can also get laryngeal swelling which is basically your your windpipe or your trachea which can be very life-threatening so a little bit of background, like I said, it was a you know swelling of the deep dermis subcutaneous tissue. It was first described actually back clear in 1586. Um, other terms that's been used is giant urticaria, quinky edema, and angioneurotic edema. Um, Clinically, you just see some non-pitting edema, which is when you push on it and there is no little divots that are left, and also non-puritic, or meaning that it doesn't itch. Um, The involved skin usually shows no signs in color. However, it can be a little bit urethymitis, which is the doctor word for red. As far as pathophysiology goes, it's usually pretty fast in onset. Um, you get an increase in local vascular permeability. There's two chemicals that is most usually seen with this. is called histamine and bradykinin. Um, 
this, these are typically critical in the pathogenic pathway of this. Most causes are primarily mediated by one of these two, um, though some investigations indicate the possibility that both may be involved in certain cases. Other basoactive mediators are, at least in part, involved in the pathogenesis of the various types of angioedema. You can see something called leukotrienes. These may play a role in the onset of this, as well as they can be induced by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs. This most commonly is aspirin, ibuprofen, Tylenol, or not Tylenol, I'm sorry, Motrin, Aleve, um, Mobic, things like this. Um, so factors influencing histamine release, bradykinin metabolism, and endothelial cell function or permeability may be directly related to the process of angioedema. As far as histamine and bradykinin-mediated angioedema, um, you get these things called mast cells and basophils, which are primary the source of histamine. Um, you get activation of the mast cells or basophils with subsequent histamine release, which may be either mediated or unmediated by something called immunoglobulin IgE. Um, these uh, the IgE mast cell activation and, and degranulation, or degranulation just basically means dumping all the granules out of the cell into the bloodstream, are key elements of an allergic reaction, and these can often manifest with urticaria, or hives, and angioedema. Type 1 hypersensitivity reactions such as food or drug allergies are typically IgE mediated as well. Another place you may see IgE mediation is with parasitic in infection or infestation. <clears throat> Angioedema may affect other organ systems as well. You can have visible swelling in the peripheral um, angioedema. It's all often associated also with burning and pain without real pronounced itchiness or redness. Most common areas involved, again, we talked about is the, you know, the eyes and ears, but it can also be swelling of the skin and neurogenital area. Um, the abdomen, you could just have abdominal pain as your only presenting symptom. And again, like I said before, your larynx, you can have throat tightness, voice changes, and breathing difficulties, which would indicate a possible airway involvement, which again could be life-threatening. Severe attacks of angioedema can herald the onset of systemic anaphylaxis or severe allergic reaction um, characterized initially by dyspnea or difficulty to breathe many cases of angioedema occur in patients with urticaria or hives as far as etiology goes more than 40 percent of chronic angioedema which means this is kind of an ongoing problem for them are what are called idiopathic which is a doctor word for we really don't know what causes this so you can also have trauma, surgical procedures, and stress alone can often be nonspecific triggers for angioedema attacks. Angioedema with identifiable etiologies include those caused by the following. Um, hypersensitivity, again, to food, drugs, or insect stings. Physical stimuli, such as severe cold or vibrations. Autoimmune disease or infections. Another class of drugs called ACE inhibitors, which are blood pressure medications. So if you've ever seen a blood pressure medication that ends in PRIL, P-R-I-L, like lisinopril, this is an ACE inhibitor. Anti-inflammatories, like I talked about before, and then there's a disease called C1 INH deficiency, which I really won't get into a whole lot, but... As far as patient education, so people that have allergies to food, venom, or other medications need to be educated regarding avoidance for one. Um, you can also be educated in uh, indications for and the proper use of an ep epinephrine auto-injector or an EpiPen um, and the need to seek further medical assistance afterwards. So, you know, if somebody comes to the emergency room with severe swelling and these things that I've described, there's kind of a wide differential. So this could be including acute urticaria, anaphylaxis, 
cellulitis, delayed hypersensitivity reaction, drug allergy, food allergies, immediate hypersensitivity reactions, latex allergy, or some sort of stinging insect hypersensitivity. So as far as testing, what can you do? Most mild cases of angioedema do not really even require any laboratory testing. <clears throat> so suspected allergies to food, stinging insects, latex, and antibiotics can be screened and diagnosed. So basically, if you do a good history and physical exam, like we always should, and you determine that, hey, I ate this two hours ago, and now I'm like this, or I took this new medication starting today, and now I'm breaking out or having an issue, then this might be an indication to avoid those things. Um, the value of Alloallergen screening for patients with angioedema is limited except with regard to establishing atopic status. So for angioedema without urticaria, especially people that have recurrent episodes of this, uh, diagnostic text tests may be including is the following. Um, <clears throat> screening laboratory values are kind of limited like I talked about before, but there's some things we can check. So one thing you can check is what's called a CBC with differential or a complete blood count. I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on another podcast, but basically this will check your white blood cell count level your hemoglobin, your hematocrit, your platelets, and it also, with a differential, it'll break down the different types of blood cells, including neutrophils, basophils, um, <clears throat> and things like that that you can use to kind of try to figure out whether this is a uh, bacterial or viral or whatever. Um, another thing that may check is something called the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or an ESR, and or a C-reactive protein, or CRP. These are both kind of non-specific inflammation markers of your body. So these can be elevated in multiple diseases, but it is something that we can always check as well. There's another test you can, that may get done called a D-dimer, which actually is the most common use for this is to check to see if you have blood clots, um, but it also can be in, in, um, elevated after surgery or trauma or anything like that. So they may do a urinalysis. So basically doing a check in your urine for infection, any uh, byproducts of bacterial replication, and also they may do a urine drug screen to see if you show positive for any uh, toxins in your body. Um, another test they may get is something called a CRP, or I'm sorry, a CMP, which is complete metabolic profile, and I've talked about this before also, but this includes electrolytes, so sodium, potassium, chloride, carbon dioxide, uh, blood urea, nitrogen, or BUN, a creatinine, which I actually talked about last week um, on my last podcast, and glucose, but then also we also check liver enzymes and uh, albumin, which is a protein level in your body, as well as calcium. Um, so that's another test they may order. There's another one called an ANA or an anti-nuclear antibody. You typically see these in more rheumatologic diseases, so this may or may not be ordered in the emergency room. They also may check thyroid studies, including levels of TSH or thyroid-stimulating hormone, which is the signal from the brain that tells your thyroid to either start pumping out thyroid medica or thyroid hormone or to shut it off. Um, they might also check a free T4, which is the uh, free-floating level of uh, thyroid hormone in your, in your bloodstream, and also thyroid autoantibodies, which is including antimicrosomal and antithyroglobulin, particularly in women or in patients with a family history of thyroid disease or other autoimmune diseases. So foods may also be confirmatory, so identifying the potential triggers is a critical step of successful control of angioedema with or without urticaria. So when there is a food or drug hypersensitivity that you suspect, allergy testing would be advisable, especially those with a history resembling type 1 hypersensitivity. Skin tests for penicillin and local anesthetics have high sensitivity and specificity. Skin tests for other drugs have greater variability according to, or accordingly rather, Greater expertise is required for that interpretation. Allergy skin tests are not useful in diagnosing angioedema related to NSAID or ACE inhibitor use. 
So like we talked about the history and physical exam, um, you might suspect other suspicious or specific problems that may prompt a few other tests, including a stool analysis for ova and parasites. So if especially being traveled to endemic areas or been out of the country that you may have brought back a parasite with you. Um, they may also check something called a helicobacter pylori, which is a, actually a, a bacteria that can grow inside your stomach and cause gastritis and cause other issues. It also be hepatitis B and C viral workup, rheumatoid factor, cryoglobulin levels, and also maybe some imaging studies, especially like a chest x-ray or a looking at your neck so getting like a cervical spine series to make sure you don't have an airway narrowing um so management the primary goal of medical management is to reduce and prevent swelling as well as reduce discomfort and other complications so most medications used in treating the urticaria anaphylaxis are also used in management of other types of angioedema epinephrine should be used when laryngeal angioedema is suspected in addition supportive care should be provided regardless of the etiology so basically yes your body does make epinephrine in the adrenal glands but we also have a synthetic um, epinephrine that can be given so if anybody has ever seen the movie pulp fiction when they jab that ginormous needle straight into the heart that's supposedly epinephrine however we do not inject it into your heart we will either give it under the skin subcutaneously or through an iv um, so no big needles to the heart pulp fiction style um, there's some other medications that we may use alpha and beta um, agonists like we talked about um, epinephrine, first generation antihistamine, so something like Benadryl or uh, ciproheptadine or hydroxyzine hydrochloride is another one. Second generation histamine, um, something like citrazine, uh, fexofenadine and loratadine, other medications like that. Histamine H2 antagonists, so like Zantac, um, which is ranitidine or cimetidine. Um, leukotriene receptor antagonists, something like Montelukast, um, tricyclic antidepressants such as doxepin, corticosteroids, which is more commonly used, such as prednisone, methylprednisolone, or prednisolone itself, antigen derivatives, something like danazole or oxandrolone, progesterone-based birth control pills. Um, getting more deeper into the weeds of specific drugs, another one could be antifibrolinolytic agents such as aminocaproic acid or trans-ischemic acid. Trans-ischemic acid is another one they call, which is TXA, which can be used also for to induce blood clotting if someone comes in as a trauma. Um, EMS can actually carry this in their trucks and can start it in the field, which can help block the um, the uh, or induce the clotting cascade. Other immune modulators such as cyclosporine or methotrexate and also agents for treatment are prophylaxis such as C1 INH concentrates and etc. As far as there's surgical options, um, in case of severe laryngeal edema, a surgical airway may need to be created through something called a cricothyrotomy or a tracheostomy or tracheotomy. So typically what we try to do is if someone comes in having difficulty breathing, we first try oxygen. However, if we feel that there is a severe swelling in the neck, we will try to do what's called endotracheal intubation. So as you've seen on TV, probably they put that little hook looking thing in the back of someone's throat and they put a big straw down into their windpipe. So we try to do that if we can, because um, that's the least invasive way to do it. Actually, there's one you can put in the nose as well, but typically for airway control, we innovate you and put you on the ventilator and to reduce the swelling, then you can get off the ventilator and go back to your normal life. However, if we are unable to innovate due to increased swelling or other anatomic anomalies, you may have to get a cricothyrotomy, which is a, a life-saving emergency procedure performed typically by surgeons. So um, what you have to do is you take a scalpel and you make an uh, up and down incision 
right around where your Adam's apple is. So if you take your fingers and push on your Adam's apple and you slide down, there's one little notch right there. That's called the cricothyroid membrane. So once we cut down through the skin, a little bit of fat, we find that. We make a little incision into that and then place a tube directly into your trachea. So obviously it's better to go through the mouth than having a cut on your neck um, to save your life. So medication summary, again, the primary goal of medical therapy for angioedema is, again, to reduce swelling to prevent the swelling to get worse. Reducing discomfort and minimizing complications are also extremely important. Um, I already went through all the drugs. I'm not going to go through these again. Um, however, antihistamines do not work with patients with bradykinin-mediated angioedema, and corticosteroids also have limited or no value in this type of angioedema. However, you can give something called fresh frozen plasma, or FFP, antifibrinolytics, which I talked about above, including TXA, or C1 esterase inhibitor, they can be used to manage bradykinin-mediated uh, angioedema. There's been some limited small studies of anti-inflammatory agents such as dapsone, sulfasalazine, hydroxychloroquine, and colchicine to provide clinical benefit in patients with chronic urticaria or angioedema. So sulfasalazine is a common medication we use with people with uh, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Um, Colchicine is actually can be used in management of gout, so that may be another place you've heard of colchicine before. Um, this group of medications is also associated with higher risks than antihistamines or H2 antagonists and leukotriene receptor antagonists. However, for those requiring corticosteroids, selecting one of these drugs may offer better side effect profiles. Special safety monitoring is recommended for each individual and each individual medication. Um, so again, this is something that can come on really, really quick and is usually self-limiting, but I wouldn't wait around to see how it goes. You should probably get to the hospital and get treated um, in a timely fashion. Benadryl at home is usually a good place to start, but again, I'm not giving medical advice, so you have to consult your local provider for this. So, so now that we've discussed the angioedema, I'm going to switch gears and talk about alcohol consumption specific to training, recovery, and sleep. Um, so alcohol is the one of the most used psychoactive drugs. It has many effects on our physiology, and I'll go through some of these aspects. Um, there's a, the source that I am using is from Nutrients back from 2010, so it is a little bit older. However, it gives a very good breakdown of multiple things, which I wanted to talk about today. So um, the first thing we're going to talk about is skeletal muscle. Um, so multiple detrimental actions of alcohol within skeletal muscle is likely. First, alcohol inhibits calcium um, transiently into the myocyte or the muscle cell by inhibiting something called sarcolemma calcium channel action. So this action is reported in isolation in human myotubes and rodent muscle tubes in vitro. Consequently, this will impair excitation-contraction coupling, decreasing strength output, so basically your muscle can't flex as good as it needs to be to do a task. Yet human clinical data fails to support this in vitro evidence. Secondly, Alcohol consumption may compromise sarcolemma integrity with evidence of greater plasma rises in the intracellular enzyme creatinine kinase following alcohol ingestion and exercise. Indeed, in rodents, a supraphysiological dose of alcohol markedly increased plasma creatinine kinase. Furthermore, in both electrically stimulated rodent muscles and in human subjected to eccentric loading, this is not evident. Thus, clear mechanisms remain elusive with the need for supporting clinical data. It is well understood that muscle cramps, pain, and loss of proprioception are common symptoms of alcohol misuse. However, the underlying mechanisms still remain speculative. So there's not a lot of proof in the human data. However, I don't know if you've ever 
drank heavily and then tried to exercise, your definitely your coordination is off and your muscles don't seem to be as functional. Also, your pain reception is also altered as well. So you may wake up feeling horrible and wonder what the heck you did the night before. Another effect is thermoregulation and hydration. So the effects of alcohol and hydration and its diuretic function are historically well recognized. The identification of alcohol as a potent diuretic dates back to 1948, where a 10cc excess urine production was evident following each gram of alcohol consumed. The mechanism subsequently identified as the inhibition of antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, by ethanol, although this relationship is evident only in beverages containing greater than 4% weight per volume of ethanol. Alcohol has further been shown to act as a peripheral vasodilator. This presents several complications, primarily this increase in fluid loss through evaporation, which further exacerbates the dehydration that is potentially already present. So basically, if you go out drinking and you go out in the cold and you pass out, your blood vessels in your legs and arms will dilate and that actually you'll release, um, you'll lose water vapor and become more dehydrated. So that is why this is a huge problem for people um, in addition to the other things. But um, further, there's further interference of central thermoregulatory mechanisms consequently resulting in a reduction in core body temperature. Thus, not surprisingly, alcohol consumption has been repeatedly shown to decrease work tolerance in both high and low ambient temperatures. Another aspect I'll talk about is metabolism. Um, in addition to be a readily accessible source of energy, alcohol has a number of effects that bear ramifications of human metabolism. Alcohol-induced hypoglycemia has been proposed as a possible cause of symptoms common to alcohol misuse. The intake of high alcohol does doses, sorry, has been demonstrated to impair liver gluconeogenesis. So basically, that means your your liver has the capability to produce new sugar. So gluco is you know sugar. Neo is new, and genesis means create. And um, subsequent glucose output decrease the uptake of gluconeogenic precursors, lactate and glycerol, and reduce muscle glycogen uptake and storage. Alcohol has also been shown to induce a reactive hypoglycemia by exacerbating insulin secretion in the presence of a high-carbohydrate meal. Why the detrimental effect of alcohol on glucose metabolism is strongly documented, some authors maintain that this can be negated if glycogen stores are maintained at homeostatic levels. So this may be a bad idea if you go out and do a really hard workout, so you're going to deplete your glycogen stores in your muscles. And also if you're a ketogenic person or doing something like paleo where you don't take in very many carbs and you're not replacing your glycogen, the alcohol could actually make this problem worse for you. Um, specifically to exercise alcohol, acute alcohol intoxication inhibits the exercise-induced rise in serum glucose concentration and caused a mild decrease and serum glucose concentration during recovery from anaerobic exercise. Further, acute alcohol intoxication may be implicated in attenuating post-exercise increases in serum fatty acid concentration. These findings bear considerable ramifications for exercise performance and recovery. It is well documented in the literature that glucose availability plays a pivotal role in endurance performance and further readily available stores of energy are necessary to fuel protein synthesis during muscle recovery from exercise. So basically, it's a bad idea to go out and get wasted and go to the gym and try to get a better workout in because that's not going to be helpful. As far as neurologically, alcohol is a well-known depressant and acts to reduce central nervous system excitability and cerebral activity as demonstrated by a slowed 
EEG rhythm. So there's a way, you know, when people put the stickers on your chest to track your heart rhythm, you can also put them on your face and on your head and you can follow brain waves. Um, I personally am not able to interpret these images, um, but it's something that neurologists typically will do. So functionally, alcohol has been repeatedly shown to exhibit a dose-dependent impairment of balance, reaction times, visual search, recognition, memory, and accuracy of fine motor skills, as seen in roadside um, alcohol um, functional tests. So walking the line, heel to toe, toes to or uh, you know finger to nose, etc. Um, not that I've done a lot of sobriety tests in my life, but I have done a few. However, I was never drinking. I had just been tired from studying and working just as a side note. So anyway, variances in neurologic activity have also been intricately linked to a disturbance in sleep length and quality with some authors observing a loss in sleep depth with a shorter time of rapid onset movement sleep and an increase in sleep at stage one. I will probably cover sleep in a different podcast, so we'll go into that in more detail later on. The effect of alcohol on neurological function is likely to be caused by a myriad of factors, the aforementioned effect of alcohol on glucose metabolism could affect cerebral functioning, leading to symptoms of alcohol intoxication. Alternatively, the accumulation of acetaldehyde, which is a byproduct of alcohol metabolism, has been theorized as a potential cause of the aversive neurological symptoms associated with alcohol misuse. However, this prospect remains speculative, so we don't really know for sure. Further, the toxic effect of a group of substances collectively termed uh, congeners conjurers, I don't know, I didn't say that right, probably, often produced during the fermentation of alcohol are likely to contribute to the reduction of CNS activity. Methanol, histamine, and polyphenols are among the best studied of these. Serotonin regulation provides a further prospective mechanism as this hormone has both been shown to be increased in the presence of alcohol and perform various cognitive functions, including memory and learning. Now, as far as alcohol and exercise recovery, most of the studies examining alcohol and athlete recovery have focused predominantly on functional measures of muscle performance and blood-borne markers of cellular tissue damage. To date, these studies have been produced inconclusive results that fail to demonstrate a dose dependency or a critical threshold above which muscular recovery is compromised. Creatinine kinase is an intramuscular enzyme which, when present in peripheral circulation, is widely used to measure muscle damage. Despite the clinical association between chronic alcohol abuse and skeletal muscle myopathy, acute ingestion appears to have little impact on exercise-mediated muscular damage. So in a nutshell, you can go out and get really blasted, and really it doesn't do a whole lot to your muscles as far as breaking them down. The lack of results may be attributed to the parameters measured within these above-mentioned trials. Creatinine kinase is highly variable and may not provide the best measure of muscle damage. <clears throat> More recently, circulating levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines released from the musculature may provide alternative measurements of muscular stress and damage. Inflammatory processes appear to be variable, variably modulated by chronic and acute alcohol use. Prolonged alcoholism is associated with high circulating levels of pro-inflammatory mediators, which conversely acute consumption has been shown to decrease production of something called tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-1 in rodent studies. It has not been established if cytokine concentrations are altered by acute alcohol ingestion during or immediate following intense exercise. Similarly to the analysis of markers of muscle damage, the intramuscular consequences of acute alcohol ingestion on aspects metabolic pathways of recovery are also ambiguous in humans. Um, alcohol ingestion immediately following prolonged cycling exercise has a modest impact to repair glycogen resynthesis. 
This action is dependent in part on alcohol replacing carbohydrates in the energy matching meals. Although acute suppression of glycogen synthesis may have evidence, examination of, glu of glycogen jeez, uh, I can't talk today of glycogen repletion over 24 hours demonstrated no long-term detrimental impact of alcohol ingestion on muscle glycogen stores. A particular relevance to recovery of strength athletes is the enhanced protein synthesis that occurs post-exercise to facilitate repair and adaptive hypertrophy. Acute alcohol ingestion actually decreases muscle protein synthesis, or, MS, or MPS, in a dose and time-dependent manner in the absence of an exercise stimulus. Alcohol facilitates this first by suppressing the phosphorylation and activation of mTOR pathways, the critical kinase cascade regulating translation initiation. mTOR has been used in a lot of other things to analyze uh, muscle damage and repair. <clears throat> Complementing the decreased activation of, pro of protein synthetic pathway, alcohol increases the expression of muscle-specific E3 ligases, atrogen-1, and muscle-specific ring finger-1, or MURF-1. These proteins are upregulated by conditions that promote skeletal muscle atrophy. Interestingly, this was not associated with increased proteolysis, suggesting alcohol primarily inhibits or impairs protein synthesis. It remains to be confirmed in rodents subjected either to muscle loading or resistance exercise that alcohol impairs protein synthesis. Subsequent clinical data is also lacking, and this remains a critical absence in the scientific literature. Functionally, I'm almost done. Functionally, the consumption of moderate alcohol augments the loss of force associated strenuous eccentric exercise. So remembering eccentric is the lengthening phase of the muscle or the negative, if you hear this in the bro science world. To the researchers, Knowledge Barnes, Mundell, and Stannard have produced the only research that has been functionally measures muscle performance to identify an interaction between post-exercise muscle damage and alcohol. This research established a scientific decrease in average peak isometric, concentric, and eccentric torques at 36 hours post-exercise. This decrement appeared to be exacerbated across all three variables in the group that consumed one gram per kilogram of body weight immediately following exercise. While this research provides new insights into the effect of alcohol consumption on post-exercise muscle recovery, further research is required to ascertain how this relationship exists and establish the physiologic mechanisms governing this response. So that was kind of a lot of science jargon. Basically, drinking you know a mild amount of alcohol is probably okay. However, there is a lot of data that does show that, you know, moderately consuming alcohol during the week may hinder your performance, especially on sleep, which is a big impact of your recovery. Um, again, I'll talk about sleep later on, but I do experiments from time to time. I haven't drank in a long time, but, you know, eating a late meal in the evening and watching my aura ring data, um, it definitely messes with sleep. You know, if you think about eating a very large meal right before you go to bed. Um, your body has to work harder to digest these materials and it's not focusing on repair and um, resetting all your metabolic entities from the day. So um, a lot of times if I eat a larger meal and then go, go to sleep, my resting heart rate never drops until right before I wake up in the morning. So a good indicator that you're not recovered is if, you're, if it takes a while for your resting heart rate to drop to a very low level while you sleep. So typically for me, it's in the high 30s to low 40s beats per minute. However, if you eat a large meal before, sometimes it'll be in the 50s as my body, again, is trying to work hard to break down the food and not allow me to rest as much. So 
Well, everybody, that's the wrap for the week. Hopefully, everybody enjoyed the episode. So, again, you know, angioedema is a big time swelling of the lips and face. So, if you ever experience this, go to your doctor as this could be one of your problems. And also, kind of watch the intake of alcohol, especially if athletic performance is super important to you and you're trying to tweak different aspects of your fitness and your longevity. Drinking small alcohol, alcohol again, is probably proven to be fine, but I would probably stay away from large doses. So, That's it for this week, and remember, movement is the best medicine.